0: Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Sebastian, my friend, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, CJ, great to be back. So before we get into it, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it is a Saturday and we both owe a debt of gratitude to our wives who We've pawned the children off on in order to record this. We do. We do. My wife was like, what is so important that you got to do a podcast on on a Saturday afternoon? I was like, competitive moats. We have to do it. The people have been calling for it. There you go. They're so elusive. You could only catch
1: them on Saturdays.
0: (laughs) Got to catch them all. All right, let's jump in here. So broad question, but
1: just give it to me. Why do competitive moats matter? ultimately when we think about the ability for a company to create value it's going to come down to the company's ability to generate margins in the long long term that are in access of the cost of capital and i think in the absence of any modes that would allow you to durably create those those access margins your margins will essentially asymptote towards the cost of capital and any any incremental value will be completed away over time so that's ultimately at the highest level very theoretically speaking, why it matters. So you're
0: saying over time, it impacts long-term returns. Yeah. And the benefits that come out of competitive moats, I've heard them thrown around a couple of times, but ability to charge higher price, produce at a lower cost, what else strikes you as a benefit of having a competitive moat?
1: You'll see that a lot of what, I'm, what I think we're going to talk about, I very openly steal and borrow from from a book that you know. I hope... You have read, and uh, you know. hopefully a lot of your listeners will read after this, it's a seven powers book. And we'll probably talk about the different modes that the book describes. They coin in sort of these seven powers. And then for each of them, there's essentially the notion of a benefit that a company has when it has one of those modes. And then a barrier that prevents somebody else from quickly catching up on that front. And the benefit typically comes in either the form of the ability to charge higher, higher costs or high prices rather and generate higher revenue as a result, or make something, offer something at a lower cost. That's typically the, the benefit that one of these modes might award you. And I'm sure we'll talk through the different modes, be it switching cost or um, scale economics or process power and, and things like that. But there's always some level of benefit to it. And then there needs to be some ability to actually keep others from catching up with that power and some kind of barrier needs to exist. And for each situation, that will be something different. But again, there needs to be some ability to actually keep that power to yourself to some extent.
0: Well, I hate to jump around on you, but now you've got me all excited here, Sebastian, on competitive emotes. I would love to just go through one by one what they are, because I'm trying to almost bucket them here. And I don't know if it's exactly analogous to the seven powers, which, by the way, I always get confused with Porter's five forces and I just act like they're the same. Sebastian, hit me rapid fire. What are the seven
1: different competitive modes? I'm going to be borrowing and stealing again, as I said, from seven powers. So we'll start with scale economies, network economies, counter positioning, switching cost, branding, a corner resource, and then process power. So those are the
0: seven. Got it. Can we go through them one and maybe you can just give an example of either like a company or a service that
1: you think addresses it? Absolutely. Let's start at the top of the list again. Scale economies. One of the prime examples would be something like Amazon, Mm -hmm. actually both on the AWS side as well as on the e-commerce side. Essentially the idea that with scale, that next incremental unit can be produced or distributed at a lower price. And it's very, very difficult to catch up with that for sort of that next person that might want to compete with you. Network economies that's something we talk a lot about with consumer businesses, So they exist certainly in the enterprise businesses as well so so network effects, one of the most classic examples would be something like Facebook. If your friends aren't on it, you aren't going to get a lot of benefit from it. That incremental user that comes on the platform actually uh, improves or increases the value of of the network for everybody. Counterposition is a really interesting one because I think it's it's actually one that, for new entrants, is super critical and one of the few that you might actually have from the get-go. Versus something that has to be developed over long periods of time. Both scale economies and network economies you don't really necessarily have from the get-go, but it's, you almost have to be at scale to have them definitionally. Kind positioning is a little different, and given I come from the SaaS and software world, I always like to refer to sort of that shift from you know on-premise to cloud and and from perpetual to subscription, the new vendors that came in with the cloud and subscription approach took a fundamentally different business model than the existing vendors prior to them, and actually one that was very, very hard for the existing incumbents to quickly replicate without temporarily, at least, harming their own business, right? And that's why you saw, obviously, when some of the large public companies, the Adobe's of the world and others went through that subscription transition it was actually a pretty painful period of time for them to do so. And many didn't make that switch. But that's sort of one example of the counter-positioning. Switching costs, I'd say another one that we, in the software world, think a lot about. Yeah, if we talk about what ERPs are still being used today, it's essentially still SAP and Oracle everywhere. I can't even remember the last pitch I've heard about a true enterprise-scale ERP. There's sort of little pieces that have been kind of ripped out of it over time, be it HR or finance marketing solutions that originally were all part of the core ERP, but the actual true transaction ERP hasn't really been changed for a long time because it's just so, so difficult for companies to replace. It's sort of like open heart surgery if a company wants to replace their their SAP or Oracle. Branding, Coca-Cola is probably one of the better examples. It exists to some extent in in software, right? Obviously, we've all heard of, you don't go wrong with IBM or whatever the, the saying was, but I think it's certainly a little bit less prevalent than, than in the consumer world to some extent. Quality resource is kind of interesting. Right now, we're all talking about LLMs and foundation models very frequently. And I think as investors, we've all heard pitches over the last 12, 18 months from highly technical teams that basically told the story of there's only 20 people like us that can build this in the world. Whether or not that's true we can we can leave aside for a second, but that's that obviously would be a core of resource, right A small group of people who could actually build something as technical and as complex as as a large language model and then the last one was process power that can come in a lot of different forms. I think the traditional example is always not always, but oftentimes with the Toyota production system where Toyota has just built this incredibly you know thoughtful approach how to produce a product at scale and and with with really high quality and i think that process power could also exist it comes in a lot of different forms i'd actually say you know amazon with its very very innovation focused culture over time and their ability to take risks that even in the context of of a large organization ultimately led them to build things like aws and other things, that to me is sort of a process power in itself as well. But, but again, it's something that actually has to be built over long periods of time. It's not something that exists from
0: day one. So we can dig into more of the specifics and the examples here, but I don't want to lose the forest through the trees before we do. I want to go back to something you mentioned, and that's the when. So you, you invest in software and technology businesses. Can you just explain like, what your expectations are for when you're investing earlier on as to what competitive moats a company may or may not have? Are you taking a bet that they're going to develop them over time? Or is it like, I'm investing because you have this competitive mode?
1: Yeah, I'd say typically it's more the former. Typically, it's really around, let's try to have a perspective on how a company might develop certain powers and certain modes over time. Again, it's it's possible that something like a cornered resource or something like a counter positioning move exists from the get-go. And that might be part of the reason why you think there's a real opportunity to build a a new company in a space. I think, again, counter positioning in particular is, is uh, an example there. If you thought about Andro versus the existing defense primes, Andrew coming in with a fundamentally different business model around fixed price versus sort of the cost plus model that's existed in that industry for a very long time, that is a differentiator that existed from the get go because they decided to build the, the business that way. And it's very, very hard for an existing prime to just change their model up in that way, right? So that may exist from the start. It may, it may be a reason why you think there's an opportunity to just build a company in an existing space. But most of the other things, certainly scale economies, network economies, they have to be built over time. And then you're really thinking more about, is it a product that might lend itself to a certain behavior, right? I think famously, Bill Gurley had a perspective on how network effects might play out in ride-share businesses very, very early, probably even before they were like very noticeably there. And I think he stuck with the idea of network effects ultimately driving good margins for a business when it was very, very much unclear for a long time because the access capital sort of made that industry so difficult for a very long time and, and, and sort of created irrational behavior, I guess, in that space, right? So I think it's a combination, right? Some elements might exist when you invest and and it's part of the initial setup, but then a lot of it is just trying to understand, is there an opportunity to build something over time that might award you one of these powers? And not every company will have all of these powers, by the way. I probably couldn't name a company that has all seven. Say more about that because
0: it sounds like you can build a pretty compelling company on just one or two of these. Is that right? You don't have to be ticking and tying on all seven. Again, I don't think
1: there's a company that has all of them. I think you need some of them. I think there's also different levels of intensity or strength across mm. these. You know, for example, if we looked at network network effects, right? I, I think most people typically tend to associate network effects a little bit more with consumer businesses. It's not accurate. There's, there's certainly network effects in B2B companies as well, but perhaps some of the stronger network effects exist with consumer business like a Facebook or something like that. So there's degrees of strength, I guess, with which these powers exist in certain companies. And then one can also have a perspective on which of these powers actually in and of itself is stronger than another. Again, I, I actually tend to think network effects is one of the most beautiful powers that a company can have. And part of it is because it's sort of self-reinforcing in a way. Once you have it and you know, once you at least avoid a certain set of mistakes, you know, it sort of reinforces on itself which for some of these others isn't necessarily the case, right? So I think that's probably one that is conceptually one of the most beautiful ones, and then perhaps also one of the most powerful ones if you if you really have it in its strong
0: form. And you answered the question I was going to ask next, which is if you had to stack rank them as in just relative order, were there one or two that jumped to the top? And it sounds like network effects is, is definitely one that stands out.
1: Yeah, I think that one stands out. You know, I, I think branding is one that's very hard to replicate when you have it in its strongest form. And again, one that you do have to nurture, but there's probably at this point certain brands that have created durability that the incremental investment in it is probably not as high anymore to some extent. But branding, again, at least for me in the the enterprise world, tends to be slightly less relevant perhaps versus some of the consumer spaces. And would you say all of these competitive modes
0: are relevant to both B2B and B2C businesses? I think you can find cases
1: for for each of them. Again, I think the network effect piece—you you, people tend to associate more with consumer companies—is probably not perfectly accurate. There are some examples, certainly. One that you know in sort of the more startup-y ecosystem, people oftentimes think about Slack as an example of a network effect, and it yeah. certainly has some. But it has sort of a weaker version of it, right? In the sense that it has network effects within an organization. If we are both working at the same company and you know, you join Slack, that's a benefit for me. It makes the experience of the product so much better. If our five colleagues join it, it's even better. But it doesn't tend to have necessarily network effects across organizations, right? And I, I know there was always the hope that eventually that would happen. There's not a whole lot of sort of between company communication that happens via Slack. And so it's sort of a weaker version of a network effect,
0: perhaps. That's a really good example. Sebastian, this is one right down the fairway. What's
1: Google's competitive mode? Another article that we should all read at some point is this aggregator theory by Ben Thompson. And um, Google is a very, very classic example of what he would call an aggregator. The idea is that if you split the market into supply, distribution, and and sort of the consumption side, companies that are able to basically integrate two of those pieces are typically able to capture a lot of value. And in a lot of cases, historically, the integration was more on the supply and the distribution side. And then some of these internet companies that were created the past 20 plus years, they really started to get to a place where they started to aggregate the consumption side. And as a result, effectively commoditize the supply side. And Google is a classic example where, again, they aggregated the consumption side massively. Everybody goes to Google to search for information. They are now also the distribution platform for, you know, obviously advertising, but they, they, they were able to aggregate or integrate those two pieces, the distribution and, and ultimately the consumption side. So that that's created a really, really
0: powerful mode. So are there multiple modes that they've stacked on top of each other? So that's the first one, kind of the classic aggregator theory there. What else have they done?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it also has a, a classic network effect kind of benefit there where there's an underlying algorithm that obviously powers all the search. It gets better the more searches are being executed on the website. They have aggregated all the users. More and more searches are being sent, you know, Google's direction that improves the, the underlying engine. So there's a classic sort of network effect there too. And then certainly today, I would say there's a super strong brand with it. I mean, I, don't, I can't, even, can't even count how many times we're both using, let me just Google that. And maybe it'll be replaced with, let me just chat GPT that or something like that. But at least for the past some number of years, it's all been about Google something. And so it's, it's just a super strong brand. Paki McCormick had a funny
0: tweet about this earlier today that you know you've made it when your noun or your name becomes a verb, like Googling or slacking someone. And then he made the joke, it's like Boeing, like you're just falling apart. So I do think there's some credence to the idea that you know your brand has made it when, it when it becomes a verb. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Well, you know what I always say. Maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. <laughs> I'm there right now. But there is a solution, and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using Theropass' compliance and audit solution. ThoroughPass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to high trust and SOC2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax. We fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T-H-O-R-O-P-A-S-S dot com. Tell me, boy, CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. So what about Amazon? And you had touched upon Amazon actually having very compelling competitive moats on both sides of their two businesses. You get the retail e-commerce side, and then you have the AWS hosting compute side.
1: What are their competitive moats that they rely upon? Yeah, I mean, obviously now they, they benefit massively from scale effects on, again, both sides, both the distribution network that they've built, where they can now reach... You know, customers on the e-commerce side within hours when they order a product. And on the AWS side, you know, massive economies of scale around being able to offer compute and storage and, and other sort of critical infrastructure primitives at the lowest prices, essentially, or lowest, yeah, lowest prices. And then on both sides, they really own this really powerful platform now where again it has sort of some of these aggregated dynamics on the e-commerce side, for example, where they've aggregated the the consumer. Everybody now goes to Amazon to buy pretty much everything they need in their day-to-day lives. And it's made it imperative for suppliers to be on the platform. So sort of the classic platform benefits that exist for companies like that on the e-commerce side. And then similarly, I would say at this point, AWS has almost become, or has certainly has become this place where the developer goes for whatever infrastructure needs they might have. Right. And they can buy the the absolute sort of raw compute storage from AWS, but they're also increasingly consuming a growing number of infrastructure services, and now also an increasing amount of you know, SaaS services through the AWS platform, right? You know this from your experience at Sneak, actually better than I do, I'm sure. I know that Sneak security software company that you worked at before had a very, very meaningful part of their bookings ended up coming through the AWS yeah. marketplace eventually, right? So again, on both sides, these, these classic sort of platform benefits or aggregator benefits that are created over time as they essentially aggregate the consumption layer or the consumer layer. I think I understand them, but <laughs> counter-positioning is still
0: throwing me off a bit. And you said you can do this at the start. Is that just basically the competitive mode of, I'm going to be a rebel to the way this is done and it actually ends up working out? Yeah.
1: I mean, in the, in the most simple term, yes. Right. At the end of the day, if you broke it down again into sort of the benefit and the barrier, the benefit is you, you are ultimately able to generate. You know, revenue or offer something perhaps even at a lower price than the existing incumbent can. And the barrier on the incumbent side is typically that it would substantially disrupt their own business, right? Mm-hmm. In the example of somebody like Blockbuster, right? Like, yeah. that's, that's a classic example that, that exists in these books and that is described in these books, usually uh, Blockbuster versus Netflix, a really, really big portion. And I think it's something like half of Blockbuster's profits were tied to late fees um, that they made when people just didn't show up in the the shop to return the video and the dvds eventually etc when netflix comes in the market and says hey this is how you know we're going to take a fundamentally different way that we charge customers we're not going to have late fees and by the way we'll send you the dvd versus you having to come into a store location then that's really, really difficult for, for Blockbuster to mirror or offer that same service because literally overnight, they're basically giving up half of their profit. And it's not to say it's impossible, but it's really, really hard to follow. So that's sort of the barrier that exists for an incumbent to basically counter that
0: counter-positioning move. It's clicking for me now. And I think with a lot of these counter-positioning examples, the core job to be done, like for this, it's movies. You're changing the service. That surrounds it or the mechanism for distribution.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, similarly, we, we, we talked about subscription versus um, perpetual case, licenses, yeah. right? Oh, that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even that, right? Where it's, you know, you sell products with this massive upfront fee. And then all of a sudden a competitor comes in and says, oh, I'm going to offer this at a third of the price, but you just have to pay annually, you know, in three increments essentially. In the first year, that's a really, really big drop in revenue that any existing incumbent would have to suffer through if they made that switch you know, immediately, right? And that's a tough, tough situation to be in. And that's why you've seen these SaaS transitions oftentimes take two, three, four years in the public market and usually be, at least early on, when they weren't fully understood and people didn't understand that the business coming out of it was actually a much more attractive business than kind of going into that transition, yeah. usually... Those companies would, would suffer and share prices would suffer for for periods of time before they kind of came out on the other side of it. And then eventually, people understood that transition was actually really valuable, and tons of value would be created through that. And, and now we understand these things much better. But early on, you could have made a lot of money betting on companies that were going through that transition and, and would be successful with it. That counter
0: positioning I remember was looked at it as extremely risky for a company like Adobe back in the day, but then it ended up panning out.
1: Yeah. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy transition either, right? Mm. And it did create a situation where, again, newer entrants, had Adobe not reacted to it, they probably would have taken more share than they did eventually, the newer entrants. It is funny that now we're sitting here today
0: and you're seeing some similarities in companies shifting from you know, seat-based subscription to usage-based and consumption.
1: Yeah, I think it's potentially a similar example. We'll see how that plays I out. I don't know that consumption is necessarily the answer you know, for every type of product. But yeah, clearly that's, that's another attempt at basically disrupting an existing business model in some way and making it hard for the existing vendor to follow suit. Sebastian, you'd mentioned Blockbuster. It's
0: always fun to kick around some companies that did have a competitive moat, but they got broken down.
1: Who else comes to mind? Kodak is another good one that obviously get completely disrupted when um, digital photography showed up and Kodak had basically made all of their money essentially off of not the cameras, but the film. Uh, oh, and digital photography doesn't actually need uh, uh, films <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, yeah. But again, it was hard. Like You could have said, well, they should have just gone after digital photography, but it turns out there wasn't that much money to be made relative to their film business. So they essentially you know, had to milk the film business as long as they could. And then eventually now it's probably, it still exists in some capacity, but it's sort of like an enthusiast market and professional market or something like that, if at all, but certainly, you know, mapped into smaller than it, than it used to be. But again, that was a counter positioning that was really, really hard for them to actually do anything against. And in some cases the right decision, you know, I think it's easy to think that, you know, in those instances, it's, Management teams that are ignorant and stupid, perhaps even and they're just not yeah seeing what's happening in the market around them, but I think in, in many of these cases, that would be way too simplistic. these you know management teams aren't stupid, right like they built and let these really large companies for for a very long time, but it's ultimately also a very cold calculus around, look, I can stay the course and keep doing my traditional business model for some number of years, and that's going to give me this amount of cash flows for the next five, seven years. And then that's going to be that. But that's actually the better option than immediately now turning course and trying to catch up with this other thing that I may not catch or this other thing that actually doesn't have nearly the market size that my old market used to have, right? So sure, there are instances where people actually fall asleep at the wheel and, and don't understand and realize the change that are going on around them. But I think there's also distinct cases where people do completely realize what's happening and they're thinking through the decision tree and ultimately realize like, look, the best thing I can do right now is is milk the existing market with the existing model as long as I can, hopefully reinvest the capital or, you know, perhaps return to shareholders and, you know, give them some other way to invest that money. But yeah, I think it's too simple to say it's just people falling asleep at the wheel. I'm glad you brought
0: that up because I'm sure if we went back in time, people did not think the executives at Blockbuster were stupid when it was like part of the cultural lexicon to every Friday night, everyone, I mean, I did it in my childhood, you go and get a movie with your friends and candy and everything. That was just like a part of life. And they were one of the bigger companies in America back then. So maybe they made some, a couple of foot faults along the way, but we do kind of kick these companies once they get kind of broken down.
1: Yeah, and I mean, obviously, in that case, it also just required a huge belief. Well, I guess that the next step from you know, deliver like mail delivery DVDs to then streaming, that step then also required a huge belief that yeah, that, that was, was actually technically t- possible, right? right? That was a bet in the business move, but it also really required a belief that that was possible and you would eventually get there. Which, you know, thinking back of I don't know, CJ, how you are? You know, I was talking to another friend yesterday, and we were reminiscing of. The days of limewire and and things like that when we'd be you know sitting there trying to download a song i'm pretty sure i'm allowed to say this now it's probably long enough ago yeah i'm like Uh, but you'd be downloading you watching (laughs) yeah you'd be downloading a song and it would take you know half an hour an hour to just download one song back in, in those days obviously there's no way you know the average person certainly i didn't believe i could at some point just press play and watch you know, a full Hollywood movie in high definition quality on my computer or on my phone, even whenever I wanted. So, like, there was this huge need to believe that had to happen from a technical perspective as well.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR. The real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and revrec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link, And receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. Reduce burn, extend runway, do more with less. Operational efficiency. These are all catchphrases that we know all too well because of the headwinds business leaders face in today's growth environment. Growth is now a battle, not a breeze. While teams are on the front lines fighting every day for top line yardage, there are hidden savings opportunities right beneath their feet. That's where Tropic comes into play. Their procurement platform brings order and process to a historically decentralized and chaotic business function. Purchasing and Supplier Management. Tropic serves as the front door for procurement that your entire company will want to use. By combining intake forms, pricing benchmarks, approval workflows, and supplier management all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. When you pour blood, sweat, and tears into revenue growth, doesn't it make sense to protect what you have fought for? Visit tropicapp.io, that's tropicapp.io, to learn how modern businesses are controlling spend to extend their runway. Your board will thank you. Your budget will thank you. Your bottom line will thank you. There is something ironic about the fact that a lot of these companies got so big by milking a competitive moat. Like I think Kodak had the IP to originally do a lot of the stuff with photography and Blockbuster had the competitive moat of being able to have the agreements to get the distribution of the movies first before anyone else. But at some point you get so big that you're looking at it like, do I really want to give this up? Then it's almost like a net present value calculation of like, do I bet the business on changing to this other business model because I've gotten so big?
1: Yeah, I mean, think about GM. I think it was GM with the electric car EV one and whatever it was called that they okay. sold for a brief moment of time. I think actually ended up buying back all the few examples they had sold and crushing them uh, really? and completely <laughs> and completely stopped for probably another twenty years or something to make electric cars. But part of the calculus surely was a certainly the technology perhaps wasn't you know where it was today. But these auto companies, I do think. Absolutely decided against really putting money behind electric cars for a long time because they didn't have to, and it required somebody like Tesla to actually push them. And now, you know, obviously we live in a very different world, and effectively every new version of the car, of any car, is now being developed on, on an electric basis versus combustion engines. Netflix
0: took a very differentiated approach from the beginning, counterpositioning Tesla did as well, and that's why. I don't know. I'm kind of torn that some competitive moats you do build over time. But part of me is saying it's a lot easier to strike out and say, I'm going to build this specific competitive moat and make that my advantage from the beginning because you don't have anything to lose yet.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think the core of it is that you want to be thoughtful and mindful from the get go how you might be able to build some level of differentiation over time. I think that's really critical. You know, I think in the venture ecosystem in particular, I do think we tend to sometimes fall into this sort of momentum and and heat trap. And we see these enormous growth curves early on in in some of these companies. And it's just just so easy to push aside any concern around long-term durability of that growth curve, long-term margins for that business. And so I think it's always good for us as investors, but also as company builders to be really thoughtful on, hey, what, what will actually allow me to maintain that curve for a very long time? what will actually allow me to make money eventually and create durable margins? Or is it just going to be something that gets completely competed away over time?
0: So before we gear towards a close and get into some non-tech examples, just for fun here, in your day-to-day, Sebastian, do you see anything coming across your desk thematically that you're saying this is a cool way that companies are using competitive moats? We're living in this age of everything seems to just be going faster with large language models and the like. Are you seeing anything that you're saying this is a cool competitive motor approach?
1: I feel like you should actually share an example of your employee with the audience because I know we've talked about it a little bit in the past. Yeah. And there's a really interesting sort of data asset example that I think you guys have built. And just like
0: that, he turns the tables on me. Look at this guy. Wow. I'm learning. Um, Yeah, I mean, the company that I work at, PartsTech, our competitive moat is the deep data catalog that we have. So we've gone out, and got all the part and fitment information from 5,800 different manufacturing brands and aggregated that into a catalog and used machine learning and you know models to basically take that data and organize it in a way that you can query it for any automobile in the world. And so there are only a handful of these data catalogs in North America, but it takes a very long time to aggregate that. So I kind of look at the company like it had two lives almost. It had this buildup stage where you were trying to aggregate you know all this data, or build this competitive moat, and then you have the venture backstage where you can actually start to monetize on top of that, and build a sales force, and build a product. And so, we look at data in a lot of ways as our secret sauce. You know, we say you, you can try to copy it, but we have a five to seven year head start on building this out, and we've built the relationships within manufacturers to get it done, and then we've paired that with the supplier relationships to then figure out what they actually have in inventory and, and where they're located in order to serve the garages who who are the end consumers. So I'm a little biased, but I think that data in that sense is a cool competitive moat.
1: I think it's really it's it's really neat. You know, we talked about the seven powers sort of at the outset of the mm-hmm. call. Which bucket will you put this one in? There's hmm. probably an element of cornered resource to some extent, scale economies some extent. I would say
0: it's cornered resources. And then I would also say we have network effects in the sense that once you aggregate sufficient liquidity on both the supply and demand side and also the manufacturing side, because it's three sides you need liquidity on in order to have transactions go fast, then it just builds on itself because you're making shops more successful, being able to get cars off the base faster, turn them over, make more money, and you're also helping the suppliers make more money and the manufacturer. So it's one of those things where you see, like once we ended up getting, I don't want to use the name, but one of the big publicly traded suppliers on the platform, it was like it clicked. Like we finally had enough rooftops in the U.S., to serve shops wherever you may be. So now that we have 30,000 supplier rooftops, if you need to order and you're in Dallas, Texas, like there are going to be enough local shops around you in order to get you what you need. But I think network effects are the most beautiful competitive moat because like you said, it's a virtuous cycle where they get better over time. It's not the diminishing returns where you have this competitive moat, but it can get worn down. It's like, no, this actually improves the bigger you get. No, I agree. So to wrap this up, we talked a lot about tech, but the world ain't all tech. What are some competitive moats for non-tech companies
1: that you'd like to call out? Gosh, I definitely think a little bit less about that. But it's actually funny, you know, when you, when you read all the sort of the classic books about differentiation and moats and, you know, all this stuff that Clayton Christensen has written or, you know, even the, the Seven Powers stuff or Michael Mobison has done some really, yeah. really good stuff. If you know him, I'm sure you do. Counterpoint Global? Yeah, exactly, and then I think he has something around measuring the moat, and it has some wild three-page checklist that allows you to measure the strength of the moat or something like that. I think oftentimes they actually tend to use a lot more of these traditional industries. I think railroads is is always like the famous example. That's mm. Probably, I think that's also the the Buffett example, right? The U.S. freight railroads that I actually own. The rails themselves, and they do as a result, incredibly hard for anybody else to enter that world. That may be different now, admittedly, but I think it is one of the the classic historical examples. So I actually always think there should be a revised version a new version of these books. And selfishly, I think there should be one that is applied specifically to SaaS and the software world. I think there's a real real opening there. But yeah, rails. I think you know, railroads are oftentimes cited as an example mentioned sort of more the defense world earlier. Now that starts to look a lot like a tech company these days. But again, that was the classic counterposition example of sort of fixed cost or fixed price versus cost plus. Yeah, I think there's lots of those examples one of the moats that i'm seeing spring up
0: just with everything going online and having a lot of influencers and the like is distribution through working with celebrities like one of the examples is logan paul and this guy ksi who've been doing these boxing matches they have this basically gatorade competitor called prime and it's like the number two i think selling sports drink in america and it's basically just sugar water but their competitive moat is they can use their celebrity for distribution and uh I don't know. That that's just an evolution of these modes that I'm seeing.
1: Yeah. I don't even know what to say about that stuff. I also <laughs> saw now you can get white claw without alcohol, which somebody aptly said, Isn't that isn't that Lacroix? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I don't quite know water. what to make of that, but yeah, uh, I am a huge fan of of sparkling water, though that market is yeah, is interesting yeah you know clearly there's some element of of branding and again I actually call that resource as well right if you are oh yeah basically getting that one celebrity there's no way to have a second version of it right and now they're not completely infungible like there are you know i don't know logan paul it's probably some other youtube personality yeah. that is similarly exciting in some ways but it's not completely completely fungible in that way
0: cool well i think that's a good spot to wrap Sebastian, anything else you want to leave the, the listeners with before
1: we go relieve our, our families
0: and play with the kids?
1: No, this was this was fun as always. Go read Seven Powers. We should all do it. And keep listening to
0: CJ's podcast. Oh, there you have it. And give us five stars. Hey, thanks, man. It's always fun to jam out with you. Likewise. See you soon. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torn and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.